Welcome to Invest Stories, a podcast about real stories, real estate, and taking real action. Join hosts John Cooper and Kyle Robertson as they talk investing, mindset, and taking that first step. We all have a story. What's yours? The Invest Stories Podcast. Booyah! Welcome to the Investories podcast. Hi, Kyle. Whoa, man, that was that's kind of robotic, right? I was trying was to emulate Chat GPT. Oh, is that, are you okay. AI now? Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, that was terrible. No, I'm kidding. It was good. How you doing? I'm good, man. Doing really good. good. I'm getting ready to leave, and my kids are having a uh, let's see, it's a movie night at their school on a Friday oh, night. Nice. So uh, we're me and my three kids are going to go sit on the really hard gym floor and for two hours and watch kids movies. So I'm super what, excited. What movie is it? Uh, I have no idea. I don't know. I think it's a Disney movie. Okay. Yeah. That's I mean, yeah, cool. it's Disney. You can't not like Disney. It's yeah. They're all good. That sounds super fun. I'm going to go and get pizza and a beer. Ooh. Oh, that doesn't I'd sound probably, near as fun as a Disney yeah. movie in a gym at an elementary school. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> So we're going to be quick because we've got to both dash out of here. First of all, thank you so much to our listeners for, for really listening to the show and, and helping us grow and um, leaving us a ton of great reviews. And if you haven't done any of that, do it. Do it right now. Anyway, today we've got Noah Evans. Noah's a friend of yours in one of your groups, right? Uh, he's done it all, really. Um, grown a, a flipping business, wholesale um, and talks a lot about quitting your W two, which is a lot of people listening to this is probably probably going to ring true, to and um, yeah, so it's a, it's kind of a, a wide ranging but focused interview. Does that make sense, yeah. Kyle? Yeah, no, sure. it does. When you listen to it, it makes absolute sense because because Noah's done a lot and uh, and he's he's been super successful and he's failed and he's got a very realistic story. He's not one of those guys that shouts all of his wins from from the rooftops and he's he's very open about that sort of stuff. So. Uh, this recent downturn, he, he gets into some deep talk about that, which mm -hmm. is really great. And, uh, yeah, I do know, I've known Noah for a couple of years now and, and I've learned a lot of things from him. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. He's got his own podcast as well, Chasing Freedom. So listeners, make sure you go over there and check that out. And, uh, yeah, Noah's, he's a fantastic guy. So you're really going to enjoy the show. And without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the Investories podcast noah evans welcome noah hey guys thanks for having me no sweat how are you doing today good man we're uh we're cruising through the last couple projects here and uh i'm i'm on the tailwinds of my uh flipping career here in uh in idaho Ooh, we gotta, we gotta get into that one so noah is the uh host of the chasing freedom show is that right noah yes sir and uh, it's, I, I read your bio. It says you uh, create solutions in a sea of obstacles. I like that. That's, Absolutely, that's man. Like. That's all, you know, ultimately, what else is business other than just solving problems, right? If you can solve problems, then you can find customers. Yep. Absolutely, <laughs> man. Yeah. Funny story so, about that. My mom, my mom came out and stayed with me for uh, a, a few days and got to see like what my work day's like. And she, at the end of like the second day, she's like, oh my God, you deal with a lot of like, why does everyone just call you with a problem? She's like, yeah, you put out a lot of fires. I'm like, ah. for a second there, I felt like, oh, wow, that's, is that a good, that's probably like a bad thing. Like, why do I just, why am I constantly like solving problems for other people? And then I realized it's because it's what I like to do. Like, I actually enjoy doing that. It's welcome to business ownership, man. That's what it is. Yeah. That's pretty much all you do is solve problems. <laughs> so Noah, let's, let's start with your specific strategy. What, what do you, what do you do? What do you own? What are you working on at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I started off in wholesaling uh, like four or five years ago, that transitioned into flipping, which I think is a pretty natural progression for most investors. Uh, scaled the flipping company up to, you know, about 15 to 20 active projects at a time and crashed horribly from that. It was just way too much and, and so many moving pieces that we couldn't keep track of it. And we grew unnaturally fast, which was an, it's not a good thing. Um, and, but we also crashed really hard, really fast too. So <laughs> there's, there's equal weights to that scale there. And, uh, you know, th through all that, we've kind of, I've kind of stabilized out on my own. Now, uh, I had a partner when we grew the flip company that my, my partner and I split and went separate ways. And, uh, I picked up a couple more projects. We've always done some weird stuff. I mean, bought in houses with lot splits and, um, we bought side-by-side -side Airbnbs on like an acre of land and threw an Airstream in the middle. So 
I've just always gotten creative. We did quite a few Airbnbs out here. And uh, now on the tail end of that, you know, we made a lot of money and then lost a lot of money and it all kind of balanced out. And on the tail end of that now, we're going to finish up the last couple of projects here. And uh, I've been working on boutique motels uh, for the last like six months or so. So I signed my first one out uh, to a buddy of mine. Uh, you guys might know him, Michael Fitzgerald. He actually just moved to Hawaii. He's hanging out with Brandon all the time now. Super, super cool dude. And he's going to finish out that one, which I'm super excited to see. And then, uh, man, I've been trying to convince Kyle to do this other one with me, but he's too freaking damn good of an investor and he won't go outside of his buy box. Well, you never actually asked. I mean, I mean, should we should we just throw it out there? You never said, <laughs> Kyle, will you invest with me? Oh, that's, that's true. I, it was. I did an indirect. <laughs> I tried to get you to come on the trip with me instead. Oh, that's true. That's true. You did. You did say that. So I, I gotta I gotta ask you, and I because we're gonna get into all that stuff that you just mentioned a second ago, but um, I like asking this question because we get so many different types of answers, and and I think I know what you're gonna say, but but maybe not. I get surprised every once in a while. Why real estate in the first place? Right from the beginning, what what was it about real estate that brought you into this? I mean, what, what was appealing? It's a great question, man. Um, if I hadn't been so unhappy at my corporate job, I would have never probably pursued this career path and, and investing in real estate and flipping houses and everything. Um so it's just funny. Have you guys heard the analogy? It was like a Chinese proverb and it goes something like, you know, uh, a Mustang wandered into a guy's farm and everybody said, oh my gosh, you're so lucky. And then his son broke his foot while riding the horse. And then everybody said, you're so unlucky. And then people came to take all the young men to war and his son couldn't go because he had a broken foot. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, you're so lucky. And each time he just keeps saying maybe, right? So any, like my story is kind of like that, right? Like uh, I had that. to move from Utah. And I left all of my connections behind and I did it to help my wife get through med school. And when I left Utah, I'd spent four years like winning business competitions and just like annihilating, you know, the, the competition there to build a network. Like I was very well networked at my school with other entrepreneurs and business owners. And I had awesome job opportunities. And the job I ended up taking is in freaking Yakima, Washington at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. So it's like, okay, everyone would be like, oh, you're so unlucky. You could have like, stepped into like high level management positions and been around people succeeding at a high level. And instead you went into like a corporate franchise renting vehicles, not very cool. But, you know, if you think about, Oh, you're not so you're, you're so unlucky that that pushed me to want to do something more where somebody else didn't control how much money I make when I get promoted. It wasn't based off ever based off how long you were there. And there was just no freedom. Like I became the top salesman and every December, I just refused to allow them to tell me how much time I had off. I've been fired from a lot of jobs, by the way. And Same. so, yeah. So they'd be like, you can't take off more than two weeks at a time. I'd be like, dude, I'm going for the whole week of December. You can fire me if you want. And guess what? They never fired me. But it just, it wasn't working for me, man. Like I worked hard all year and I wanted to spend that month with my family. And they never wanted me to because they wanted me there to make money for them. Um, and ultimately that ended up pushing me to get into wholesaling. Uh, and that took a long time, eight months, no deals, spent every dollar I had on marketing, was ready to quit and finally close the deal. Isn't that amazing? Like, sorry to interrupt you, John, but like, we just got to kind of, we, we got to brainstorm on this a little bit. seems like most entrepreneurs and business owners are just the shittiest employees out there. You know, I mean, Good, <laughs> I tell you what, and so for those of you listening, if you're just struggling and you're here and listening to this because you're trying to figure out what else there might be for you out there. Gosh, there's so many ways to make money in this world. So many ways to make money in this world. And whether it's consulting, figure out something that you're good at, become a consultant, start a business, fail at a business, start another business. Man, there's just so many different things. And and I think that kind of speaks to, I guess, your background in real estate because you have, you've tried everything. Well, you've tried a lot of things, not everything, because there's a, there's a billion different asset classes in, in real estate. But, you know, to, I mean, I guess that your success in the business world, does that really kind of help you get, get the motivation? Cause you get one win and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm going to try something else. See if I can win at that. At least that's what I do. I don't know if that's, if that's what you do also. Oh yeah, dude. My, my ego gets fed when I'm stacking some wins and all of a sudden everything looks consumable <laughs> and then you lose and then you get humbled. You know, it's, it's a roller coaster ride. It's just constant ups and downs. So speaking of that um, roller coaster ride, something you said actually about uh, your mom coming out and, and kind of watching you work and being like, Holy shit! You were. Uh, she might not have said holy shit, but um, wow, <laughs> your productivity and, and challenging problems and, and all that good stuff. Um, in terms of 
kind of from where you were in, in a corporate job to being that connector and that problem solver, what were the kind of shifts in, in mindset and the educational pieces that kind of made that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So shifts in mindset. Um, you know, while I was there uh, at the corporate job, it just is all very fixed, right? And so like the path is clear, put your head down, work hard, don't become a problem. And eventually you can make a hundred grand if you work for five, six years straight, right? Um, versus like entrepreneurship is like, I could lose a hundred grand tomorrow or I could make a hundred grand tomorrow. It's all based on my capacity. So I would say the main difference is the intensity in which you have to educate yourself. Um, you can't like, there's just no, there's no time to just like sit around and do nothing. Right. So it's like paying to be a part of masterminds, constantly reading new books, constantly listening to podcasts, constantly both being a guest and a host of a podcast. Um, those are the ways in which I kind of just like do my best to stay updated on what's going on. And you just never know like what you're going to grab. That's all of a sudden going to change the entire way that you view something. Um, here's a, a very specific example of that. Um, Kyle, our mutual friend, Ryan Bullock came on my show last week, second time he's on the show. I told him straight up. I was like, after the show, I was laughing because I kind of thought the episode was going to be a doozy. Like that was my, I was like, what else, what else is Ryan going to talk about, man? I, what else is he doing differently? You know, he owns a, an engineering company and he owns multifamily and this is, you know, it, what else could we share? Ryan comes on and drops a freaking bomb on the way that he's financing properties and getting sellers to take second position notes with like 20%. They're only carrying 20% of the balance. And I'm like, dude, I feel like I could negotiate with sellers and get them to carry 20%. It's the, the problem is I need them to carry like 90%. But all of a sudden, here was a, here was a way to shift the model. And so I think that's the main shift going from a job to entrepreneurship is you have to constantly be educating yourself to stay ahead. I love that. From there. Perfect. Yeah, that's interesting stuff. And I, I, I know Ryan, Ryan, he's, he's a pretty amazing guy. He's uh, we've had a, a handful of, of conversations at our mastermind meetings and on a lot of really good mindset stuff. And uh, in fact, that whole group from, from the Maui mastermind, uh, part of Brandon Turner's deal and Tarl Yarber's deal is uh, uh, there's a lot of very unique individuals and you really get to learn a lot about the different ways of doing real estate. Cause I don't know of anybody in that group that actually does the same thing. You know, it's, it's amazing. And I've learned a ton of stuff from all of you guys. Um, I want to, I want to ask one more question about, uh, about your life in uh, the corporate world. Uh, what was it like? Because I, I remember what it was like for me to finally take that jump and, and quit and, and move along. Were you scared or did you have so much confidence <laughs> at that point that you were just like, you know what, I'm going to burn the boats. I'm out of here. Wow. Let's do this. What, what, how, how did that work for you? Dude, I'll get super transparent because this is a super funny story. So I held on to the job long enough to qualify for my first owner-occupied loan on a property. And I bought a a house that had two levels, duplexes, I was outpriced. I couldn't even afford a duplex back in like 2020 when I did this, or 20, 2019 when I did this. And so I bought a split level home with two fenced yards. And uh, I just, I mean, God, God, had, God was looking out for me because I'm pretty sure that I left Enterprise before my loan closed and they never double verified my employment. So somehow we closed, but the, the timing was, I messed up on the timing. So I, <laughs> I was like, I was like so excited when I put my, my, my two weeks in, I was like, I'm done. I'm out of here. And, uh, the straw that actually tipped the camel's back. I mean, I was planning to leave anyways, but the straw that finally tipped the camel's back was I was trying to be an entrepreneur and I was like, okay, if I'm not going to leave my job. I need to do something here where I can make additional money. So I made a pitch to the, um, to like the head guy of like the, all the enterprises in Washington, Alaska and Idaho. And I said, Hey, I want to start a cleaning company to clean all of the branches. The cleaning companies were using are horrible. And I went and walked the stores with them and I showed them how terrible everything was cleaned. I said, this is embarrassing. We're a customer-facing company. We can't be running like this. And uh, he actually, you know, I'm sure he was looking out because he has a path that he needs to funnel people through and he needs them to take that path in order to grow his company. And that's the path he wanted me to take. But he literally told me, bro, I just need you to put your head down. I don't need you to become up with all these ideas. I just need you to make money in the store. And like, wow. literally, I what sent him that gift. email. Yeah, <laughs> I sent him that email that night. I was like, bro, I'm out. Good I'm for out. You. I, I could do a lot more and we could have grown together. But if, if that's what you're looking for, I'm no longer a fit. And then I got so scared after, after the fact that I actually asked to keep my job longer. And they were like, no, dude, you said you're out. 
So when we talk about fear, man, yeah, I had a lot of fear. That's epic. I think what's really interesting is, and I've I've been, you know, I've worked in two different countries. I've I've worked different jobs, different bosses, different industries. And what's really interesting is if you find that that fit for W two where it's nurturing and people say bring your ideas and be an entrepreneur and grow and make this thing your own. That's exciting, right? And that that will give you those skills and hopefully you've got that like downflow of mentorship to to build your. Um, kind of business off the back of it or you get you're in a box and the box is this size and you can't go out of that box i've been in both of those scenarios and it is shocking how short-sighted some large organizations and some high-powered people are um there's there's a there's a phrase in the uk computer says no and it's the uh, idea of an agent (laughs) typing it into the computer and saying no can't do that and it's really interesting um in terms of then that mindset piece and and that education piece is there like books or courses you you took you guys met on a mastermind obviously but kind of before that yeah so i mean i did like i think this is an interesting thing right a lot of people make excuses that they don't necessarily have time to do this or that right dude while i was picking up people at my career and running the stores i had a headphone in and was listening to bigger pockets podcast like i would consume probably 3 to 4 podcasts a day um and I got stuck in analysis paralysis. Like I didn't, I don't think I needed to spend that long, but it just, that was, that was what I did, you know? And luckily I ended up making the moves and uh, unluckily or luckily, however you want to look at the story, right? Like they didn't allow me to go back after I put my two weeks in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that so many people make excuses, but it's like, if there's a will, there's a way, right? And, you know, I'd get home late at night and I'd work on my marketing campaigns for wholesaling and I'd try to read at least 10 pages a day. And I, it's just the smallest little things that stack up over time. And all of a sudden you're like, boom, whoa, all of a sudden I have all this knowledge and I can do this. And you never really feel completely ready. You're never going to feel ready. No matter how many books you read, how many podcasts you listen to. I mean, you know, Kyle, along with 30 of my other friends all own large multifamily buildings. And I'm like working on my first, like, you know, more than seven figure deal. And I'm surrounded by people that do it. And I'm still scared. It doesn't, the fear doesn't go away. Um, but you know, you just you just can't stop educating yourself, and you got to stack the small wins. What's been the what's what role have things like? Okay, we talk about podcasts, we talk about books, uh, we talk about being around other people. What about you know masterminds, conferences, things like that? How much how much of a role did that play in your growth story? Yeah, um, that's a that's a really great question. I don't know that I would I'll be able to quantify that into like a. a an answer that someone else can understand. Um, the Maui mastermind. Well, hold on. Let's go back. Let's go big picture real quick. So I think you get out of it, what you put into it. So that's the first thing I say, no matter what you pay for, what course you go, or who you go buy something from, you're going to get out of it, what you put into it. Um, you know, Brody Fawcett actually talks about that. And he makes a, a very intentional point that anytime he pays for something, whether it's a massive conference where there's 3,000 people going and none of it's like a one-on-one deep dive or an intimate uh, mastermind like what you and I did, Kyle, where it's 30 people and we all get to know each other on a deep level. He goes in there with the mindset ahead of time that he's going to get more out of it than everybody else. So, like, he's like competing, right? He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win and I'm going to extrapolate the most amount of value. And you know, I think just that mindset alone I love that. to stick out, right? Yeah. Um, so I pay for a, I pay for a handful of different, you know I paid for one-on-one coaching. I paid for um, courses that taught me how to be a better marketer for off-market deals. I paid for Brandon Turner's thing, and they all give different types of value, right? Like um, the game can be kind of lonely. I've always liked doing it with partners, and I'm not doing it with partners right now. So to me, the most value I'm getting right now, honestly, I have twenty-something other friends that, that participate at a high level. And I definitely feel like I'm like one of the smaller fish. And yet all those guys will answer their phone call, my phone call. They'll talk to me. They'll look at my deals. And like just having like that group of friends, way it, I would pay like triple. Don't tell Brandon that. He'll start charging triple. But I would have paid triple, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's invaluable. But that's not like nobody gives you that. Like I didn't go to the Maui Mastermind and, and all of a sudden you and I are just friends, right? Those relationships take effort. And it takes follow-up and it takes caring and it takes yeah. like wishing people happy. It's like you have to put well, the effort in. And it's interesting because when you surround yourself with the title, you know, I, I hate to say that it's because we pay for it because that's not really the reason. We're there for personal growth. 
I seem to get a lot more value out of things that aren't free, you know, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to throw a blanket so over true. everything. I'm not trying to throw a blanket over everything. Cause a lot of free, free, free things out there, you know, are, are pretty valuable. But when you're, when you're there, it's like you get into this group, this mindset of people who want to see everybody else in that room be successful, especially in the real estate space. There, there are some people who come into this being adversarial, being competitive, you know, I'm not going to tell you where I'm investing because I don't want somebody else here. It's like, my gosh, this this is a big sandbox. There's a lot of room for us, for everybody to play in it. You know, it's like just and be open about it. And when when you approach these types of things with that sort of mindset, you invite everybody into your circle. And like you said, people will look at your deals. They're answer, they'll answer your phone calls. And, and that is so incredibly valuable. So and then you meet partners, right? People that you can actually do deals with. And I feel like the things that make me the most money are things that I've met from other or learned from other people. I've learned lots of good things from podcasts and books and things, you know, all my base knowledge came from a lot of that stuff. And I still listen to podcasts and read books today, but man, I tell you what, I've learned so many things from, from examples of other things that people do and they're willing to teach me and explain things. It's just been, it's been huge. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely agree with that. So I guess moving on, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, those first few times, you know, that you, you really started jumping in after you, you, you know, you've left enterprise and did you go straight to partnerships? Did you, did you try to set out a loan on this or, or what did you, what'd you do? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's so funny because there's a couple like, this is, I don't know if this is the right word, catalytic moments where I remember having to go all in to reach the next like level. Right. And so one of them was you know, buying my first house and then having to do the rehab, the rehab plus the purchase of the house drained my savings account, like almost completely. Um, and then I took what little I had left and in the same like 60 day window started my first flip. And I did that flip in a super weird way. It was a homeowner willing to list the house with me. I just got my license. Didn't even know how to freaking open an MLS lockbox. Like I literally remember going to the door and then having to call somebody. Like, I don't know how to get in there. They're like, you have to have an app. I didn't know that. So couldn't even get in that day. And uh, yeah, I had this guy willing to list his house with me. I was door knocking doors and I was like, Hey, I'll pay for the rehab. And then in that rehab, I just padded in the margin I wanted to make it. That was my first flip. I never even took ownership of the house and I ordered everything from home Depot and I measured it all out and I wasted a lot of material. Um, and then like literally 15 days after that, I found my first partner and all of a sudden I was a private money lender on his house. And I gave him, I gave him the, the tiniest amount of money that I had left literally couldn't even make my mortgage payment. That's how much I had drained my account to do that first deal. But he gave me 25% of the profit in that flip and he was already halfway done with it. So that was, it was, it was like a, it was like a bump to finish the rehab. And uh, yeah, from there, I mean, it just snowballed, but it was like multiple times, dude, I had to put everything on the line to be able to participate in that deal. Um, and that was scary. You know, there's a lot of times I could have been taken advantage of at the beginning and even to this day, you know, um, I'm finishing up my last few houses and I decided to not do private money. I decided to just self-fund all of those. And it took every, I mean, we're running super, super thin right now, but I didn't, it, the market's so volatile, but I didn't want to risk other people's money at this given time. Mm -hmm. um, if I was going to risk something, it was going to be my own. A pretty good uh, strategy um, in hindsight, right? Yeah. How, do, how does that work with the wife, right? So, um, you know, Money oh, is one of the biggest that, no. conversations. <laughs> how, how does how did you? I guess sell is probably the wrong word, but how did you um, get her to kind of believe in in your vision? And obviously, you put in a lot of work uh, to develop your <laughs> mindset. How did how did that work? Oh man, dude, this is such a funny topic because me and my wife just changed up our entire strategy of how money is uh, how money flows in our house. So our household. So. Uh, Previously, my wife just completely trusted me and I didn't need to run anything past her. That was how we ran it before. My wife didn't want to know. She doesn't pay bills. She doesn't know what things cost. And that's totally fine. She's happy with that. And that was when things were going well. So I had stacked enough wins to have that trust. And uh, it just changed really fast. Like all of a sudden, one flip needed 20 grand to finish. Uh, another flip lost 40. I paid that lender off, right? And then it was like, nothing else ended up penciling and yet we kept spending the same amount of money and then all of a sudden i was like hey i, th I think we're gonna have to sell the tesla and uh also uh let's let's stop getting as many coffees and going out every single weekend and and we're not going on vacation this year and she was like why do i have to change my lifestyle because you you effed a bunch of stuff up and i was like mm, that's a fair point she's that's like a fair question yeah <laughs> and you know like 
I think a lot, I think prior to her kind of like giving that realistic, like slap in the face, like, well, well, you gave me this lifestyle. Now you want to take it away because you didn't manage something correctly. I took a lot of offense to that at first, to be honest. I was like really upset, but I was like, I'm putting a Tesla up for sale tomorrow. Then if you're going to act like that, you know, but then I, I had to actually internalize it and realize that I could sit here and blame the market. But guess what, dude, there were people who saw it coming and they did the smart thing and they got out of their deals and I didn't. So like I have to take ownership for the fact that this was actually completely avoidable and I didn't avoid it. And what am I going to learn from that? And how am I going to be better? So we didn't sell the Tesla. I just have to work harder. That's <laughs> so like the calluses on my ears for being on the phone all day. Uh, I do that. So my wife can, can keep driving the, the fun car and we, and we don't have to change our lifestyle. And that's, I think it's worth it. Um, I needed to take ownership and that's kind of what that, that taught me. But now our rules have changed. I'm not allowed to just go invest in anything I want or spend anything I want or buy whatever cars I want. Now we make decisions together. And my wife says no to most things, which is probably a good thing at this given time. Yeah. So at some Sounds point you, you, you compromise, which means that she gets to make the decisions. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm with you. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, let's, I, I don't know how deep you're willing to go on this, Noah, but maybe for the listeners, let, let's get a little bit of background on that because you, you gave a lot of, a lot of information. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from your story. So if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit about what happened, because I mean, for the listeners, Noah got a little bit caught up in, in, in this market turn that we've had over the last six to eight to 12 months. Yeah. And uh, maybe tell a little bit of your story there. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a little bit of context, we were at a higher risk than most people to start with. Um, Boise had appreciated almost 20% a year for two years in a row. That's 40% appreciation in 48 months. That's insane, man. I mean, that basically means your house doubled and it's true. It did. Uh, the first house I bought, I bought for $200,000. And by the way, when I bought that, it was the most expensive house on that street. I remember like the week before closing, walking up and down it. And I had like data where I could see how much everybody else paid for their houses. And I like was like pulling my hair out because I was like, I'm the dumbest person on this block, dude. No one has ever paid more money for this house. And uh, two years later, that house is worth 400 grand. It's not worth 400 grand anymore. The market is moving, right? But um, yeah, I guess, you know, we can go specific on a certain deal. But uh, that was some context on the market. So our market was kind of subject to changing just as fast as it had gone up. And it did. Um, the deals that I bought where they had smaller margins, which I was okay with because our game was volume, right? So I was like, okay, yeah, maybe we only make $45,000 on this house. It sounds like a great, it sounds like a, like a chunky amount of money to make. Like I don't, I don't want to be unhumble and sound like that, that's not a lot of money. That is. But it's not a lot of money when the risk you're taking is $400,000. Right. So it's like we're making $45,000 on a $450,000 house, sometimes $500,000 house. That changes quick, man. I mean, you think about that. What? The house drops 5% in value, your entire profit margin is gone. It's gone. There's, there's, I mean, there's not, you're not making any money at that point. And that's pretty much what happened. So, like, a lot of these houses we bought when the market was continuing to go up. And mind you, I don't ever buy off appreciation. So I, I, I wasn't buying saying, oh, well, you know, the, the comps right now are five. It's probably going to work 525 when I'm done. And we didn't even do that. That's just crazy. Um, but everybody froze up. So everything I bought from the start of 2022 through like the middle of the year of 2022 is when I stopped buying. Um, every single one of those deals, you know, we bought thinking the market was just fine and flatlined. And they were all listed at the end of 2022. And what happened at the end of 2022? Rates pretty much now more than doubled which means people's affordability like what they could afford completely got slashed in half and i got caught in the middle of that too i'm living in one of the the houses that originally we thought we were going to have a three thousand dollar a month payment on and now it's a four thousand dollar a month payment so i think a lot of flippers like i think they forgot about the fact that buyers have to be able to afford the houses you're flipping so like where are you listing and can someone realistically afford to to live there um and now we've changed our strategies right so it's like i'm flipping a house out in coldwell we capped, I capped the rehab budget to 25 grand. I said, it doesn't matter what we can or can't get done, but we got to make this house livable with 25 grand because people can't afford that home to be 350 grand. You can't, they can't afford the, the average salary cannot afford that mortgage payment, but they can afford a mortgage payment on a $285,000 house. So there's our list price, right? Um, I don't know if that answered the question or not, but yeah. We're seeing a ton of that in San Diego. Um, so uh, flippers who have developed very nice looking properties and now it's just cost prohibitive to actually take it down as a, as a, you know, the, the elevated price point, um, because the, the mortgage would be, you know, seven, eight grand, um, to get a, get a note on it, which is kind yeah. of crazy. 
super crazy. I've seen something creative. Um, there's a lot of people who flip houses like I do where they do a first position debt is a hard money lender. Second position debt is a private money lender. Well, the private money lenders are used to lending out money. That's that's the essence of their business if that's what they're doing, right? Or it's a part of their business or investment strategy. Well, instead of taking a loss, I've seen some of these private money lenders, but um, none of mine have, have done this, but some of them I've seen um, take a second position and continue the second position after the home has been sold in the form of a, they're, they're basically becoming an owner carry to the new owner occupant. So that owner occupant brings less money down. If the interest on the second carry loan is less than what the bank is offering, they actually end up with a smaller payment. Smaller payment means what? They can actually afford to pay more for the house, which means everybody's usually getting out free and clear. So um, that's an interesting strategy. I've seen some people deploy uh, and I've seen, I've seen them have su- some success with it. I've not heard of that one. That's, that, that's interesting. I, I think that it's funny when, because these Michael's, these market cycles are normal. They're painful, but they're normal. And this is when you start seeing people think outside the box, you know? And so yep. inventions, the necessity, what is that? How does that go? Invention is the mother of necessity. I don't know, something like that, but yeah, this yeah. is a pretty good example of that, you know? Um, so partnerships, I want to talk about partnerships a little bit. And I've, I've talked on the show here that I've, you know, never, I haven't done it. I'm not opposed to it by any means, but, but you have. And so maybe a, a few lessons, that, you know, uh, things for people to look out for whenever they're looking into doing any kind of a partnership, some, because I know you've done a handful of these. Dude, uh, what, what would you give people for advice on partnerships? This part is going to be gold, man. This part is going to be gold. This is, this you is like going to be worth. Yeah. I would say this, <laughs> the lessons I've learned, <laughs> man. I've actually really been contemplating writing a book on the right and wrong ways to do partnerships. And um, I'll give some context, man. I've lost, I mean, if I summarize the last two years due to partnerships and, and I can't blame them, it's due to me not understanding how to work with and manage partners because when everything's going great, it's easy for everyone to get wrong, uh, to get along. But the minute things go wrong and people are now worried about their individual families integrity just uh, unfortunately i mean you wouldn't think that that's the way it is but that's the way it is man for most people integrity is going to go right out the door um and guess what the sad part is you can't test your partners on hey when when shit's hitting the fan for real like are they going to stick to their guns are they going to stick to you know uh doing the right thing even when it's hard you can't just test that up front um and you'd be surprised you'd be surprised i mean these are i partnered with people that i'd known for years um and when stuff went sideways um, they all chose to protect themselves, right? So let's break that down into a, a few ways to, to set them up properly. One, I don't care if it's your mother, brother, your best friend, your grandma, you have to have an operating agreement when you start. And in your operating agreement, you have to spell out what's the exit. What happens if so-and-so passes away? How do I deal with their spouse? What happens if so-and-so doesn't have the money required to put in 50% since we're equal partners? You have to spell those things out. And guess what? If you're not, if you guys aren't willing to have those uncomfortable uh, conversations up front, then you shouldn't be doing business together. You have to be willing to have those uncomfortable, uncomfortable conversations. You have to spell out who's responsible for what, right? So let's say me and Kyle go do a deal. If me and Kyle go do a, a, a deal, you know, we're going to lay out, okay, Noah, you're responsible for all the operations. If Kyle has to step into operations because you're failing to, your, your percentage on the cash flow or whatever, I mean, it's all negotiable, right? But maybe my cash flow needs to go to zero until I step back up and do that again. And on the other end, if Kyle's supposed to fund the deal and he don't bring the right amount of funding or we're, we're doing some gap funding and maybe we've got to fund a couple months, if Kyle can't fund it and I got to do it, something needs to change on, on Kyle's return, right? Those are super uncomfortable conversations to have, but you got to do it because it's easier to come to terms with each other when things are before things get bad. Um. The other thing I've learned is like what you put, what you put on paper and what you sign, it, it doesn't always matter. At the end of the day, they still got to do the right thing. Cause if they don't, what's the alternative? You got to take them to court. And unless it's, unless the loss is or the damage is big enough to be worth doing that. Most of the time, you're not going to do that. I had a handful of small losses that it was like on paper, we were supposed to share the loss 50, 50. We owed somebody money. I refuse to just not pay somebody back. If I owe somebody money, that's like, you know, it's just, I'm going to be doing this for a That's long integrity. time. That's integrity. Yeah. And I'm going to yeah. do this for the, I want to do this for the next 40 years. If I burn somebody now, how many opportunities am I giving up in the future? Probably a lot more than this one. Probably a lot. It's probably worth a lot more to just pay that person back than to short them. Mm-hmm. Well, not everybody has that opinion, right? So I have a loss with an individual 
I'm covering 60% of the loss. I got them to agree to 40. Is that fair to me? No, it should be 50-50. We signed a document saying 50-50. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, we got to do what we got to do. And I'm going to make sure that guy gets his money back. And that was the only way I could make sure he got his money back. So, but on paper, it was 50-50. So you just got to be aware that, like, just because you sign something doesn't mean it's the way it goes. You got to plan for things to go wrong because they do. And here's the other, here's the other coin I'll share with this though. Partnerships are rocket fuel when you're paired up right. So I would not have grown as fast as I did had I not taken on partnerships. There's no way. I had no experience rehabbing houses. I had a natural uh, skill set that I worked really hard to develop even further to sell, to negotiate, and to find money. Those are things that I, I could do somewhat well, and I just worked really hard to become even better at them. And so I picked a partner that was good at rehabbing houses. And we went from zero to like 20 houses at a time within like, you know, an 18 month period. Like that's crazy. So when done right, dude, partnerships are awesome. And even though I've been burned in partnerships, I'll still do partnerships because I love winning and I love growing with other people. That's so much fun. It's, it's way better than doing it by yourself in my opinion. I, I love that. I think that's, that's sage like advice and a hard lesson learned, right? It's, um, yeah, get, getting on um, and figuring that piece out. In terms of um, in terms of funding and kind of building that, I guess that kind of war chest and and building that funding kind of route. What what did that? What does that look like? And I guess what did it look like? And what are you doing kind of differently now? Or what would you do differently now? Yeah, you're talking about the private, like raising private money, essentially. Uh, yeah, pretty much. But but kind of the whole piece, right? There's some creative strategies we've already hit on. Uh, in terms of like the second position kind of exit strategy, those kind yeah. of pieces are really interesting. Yeah. So I like primarily right now, because I'm not going to do any more single family flips. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a part of me that maybe I'll start up another flipping company out of state in a, in a state where the purchase for the average medium, like home price is below 300 grand. I feel like that's still safe. Um, but I'm not going to flip here in Idaho anymore. But on the stuff I am looking to buy, which is like boutique motels and larger commercial assets, um, I am strictly going after seller financing on those. Partially, that's probably because I don't necessarily I don't necessarily have a great fundamental understanding of larger commercial loans. Like Kyle's someone that's always like blown me away with the commercial loans he structured. Um, you know, I even tried to call like one of Kyle's lenders and I was like, "Will you fund this random deal over in India?" And they're like, <laughs> "Bro, who are you? Why did Kyle give you our number?" Even they, did the right they did not. No, uh... they didn't say that. <laughs> but like, you know just because of my lack of understanding of that um i'm pushing myself to do seller carries because that's something i do understand i can if i can negotiate the rate and i can fit that into the deal and i can look at it on the conservative side of am i going to make money even if things go wrong with the seller note then that's something you know i'm i would take down so can you give us the quick kind of rundown of what what that looks like that seller carry process yeah yeah absolutely so a lot of the times like i don't you don't just like hit somebody with hey Kyle will you seller finance this for me Kyle, at that point, Kyle don't know me. No. Why would he sell or finance that? His answer is always going to be no, um, unless he's like, you're, you're getting this random dude that actually understands it, which is pretty rare. So I'll give you a real life example. I, I'm working on a, a lead I actually found uh, off market. A guy wants to sell his 12 unit apartment complex like 45 minutes away from me. Um, so I hit him up. It's just, I start off with some basic you know, uh, rapport building. I'm asking about his life, what he's doing, how he got into this, why he decided real estate, almost like a podcast interview, really. Like I'm treating him like an interview, right? And I'm just asking him questions and we're laughing. You know, that's a big key. If you can get him to laugh, you're kind of loosening him up. And then, I, and then I try to find out, do they have a loan on the property? Turns out he doesn't have a loan on the property. Great. Because um, if they do, then you got to figure out, is it worth it to pay their loan off? And is there enough of a balance that they could carry? And does that make sense? And a lot of times it doesn't. So he has no loan. And then I go, well, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know that we're going to be able to put together a deal, but let's just say that if you and I came to, together and we had terms that were that made it so you could win and I could win, you know, would you entertain being the bank? If I gave you some money down and made you some payments, would you would you entertain being the bank? And his answer was, well, I mean, maybe let's talk about it. But that's very different than just coming right at it. Hey, you, will you sell or finance? I see a lot of people do that. Um, but now we have a relationship. You know, I've gotten him to laugh a couple of times. Uh, here's another little trick I do too. The more times you can, if you can increase the frequency in which you've connected with that person, you build your trust each time. So like I called him today at lunch. I didn't, I wasn't ready to make my offer. I haven't even done all my due diligence, but I called him just to say, Hey, 
you know, uh, I put a little bit more thought into this. I'm waiting for my wife to get here. We're gonna have some coffee. But, um, you know, if I gave you 80 grand down, you don't have to have an answer, by the way. But if I gave you 80 grand down and we did some monthly payments, like, is this in the realm of like, are we on the right path? Or are you completely, you know, against that? And I like to throw that in like a negative way for them out. Like you're, you're probably completely against that. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not completely against that. We just need to, I just need to know what the payment's going to be. Okay, cool. But I didn't need to have that conversation, but it increased the frequency in which I was connecting with them. So now when I call them tonight, I've had one more call underneath my belt. I've talked to them one more time. So yeah, we'll, we'll call them tonight and we'll see what happens. Yeah, then that's, you hit on so many super important pieces of seller financing. And John and I have been on a seller financing kick here for these last, shoot, I don't know, John, what has it been? Like two or three months now we've been really mm -hmm. hammering out the the creative finance stuff, but the rapport building is everything. You know, if you can figure out how to make this about them and less about you, you know, instead of, you know, pulling the pin on that grenade and chucking it in there and saying, Hey, will you take seller financing? Cause like you said, it's nine, nine and a half times out of 10, they're going to say no. But um, another thing and to add to what you're saying is, is you know, what Noah was telling everybody is that he's direct to the seller on most of these things. It is so stinking difficult to try to negotiate a seller financing deal when you have an intermediary, a, for example, a real estate broker. Most of them have no idea. I mean, there, there's a lot of them out there that, that know what the concept is, but they don't understand why this is beneficial for everybody. And um, well, and there's some other things that I would get into there, but let's just say that it's just difficult when you've got an intermediary there. So trying to, trying to go for the listeners, when you hear that direct to seller, you're either talking about a wholesaler or you're talking about a buyer who's actually directly speaking to the seller. And it makes all the difference in the world with negotiations because negotiation is an art form. It is not about writing down an LOI, shipping it off to them and keeping your fingers crossed. There's so much more to it to, to that because people like to do business with people that they like. It's just that simple. And if you get them to like you and you like them and you guys can, because essentially you're marrying this person for as long as this, this seller note's going to be in existence, you got to talk to them, you got to send them checks, you know, and, and check-ins and this, that, and the other. And so it, it's, it's super, super important. So um, yeah, we really appreciate you sharing all that stuff, Noah. Um, so the financing stuff you're, you're going forward, you're, you're looking for seller financing for the bigger, the bigger things. Um, are you, I know you said you're not flipping in Boise anymore, but are, are, you said maybe some, some cheaper stuff in different markets. Have you identified other markets that you're kind of looking at? What part of the United States do you like? Yeah, there's, I mean, the Midwest is pretty cool because they're just, they're just consistent. They don't appreciate a lot, but they don't fluctuate a lot. Their, their home prices have really never gone above 300 grand for a medium home price. And so they're just like safe. But there's also not, there's no, there's not, I don't see the opportunities as much to like hit a home run deal. Like there's not, there's, I don't think there's a lot of people out there making a hundred thousand dollars on a, on a single family home flip in Indiana. Um, it's out, I mean, I'm sure they've done it, but um, so, I mean, I'm, I've already invested in South Bend, Indiana. I have some long-term rentals there. So the flip market uh, is alive and well there. I mean, they, they, I, I'm a part of their Facebook groups and stuff like that. And I keep in contact with some people out there. They didn't have this massive fluctuation like we did. They also didn't get all the, you know, extra $20,000 on this house. And well, we made 30 more on this house. We had that here, but then we also, you know, it, it nosedived and I wasn't paying attention enough. I didn't have uh, an understanding of which data points I should have been following and watching. Um, but they've just been consistent, man. Those guys have been out there just constantly making 25 grand on a house, 30 grand on a house, 25 grand on a house, 20 grand on a house. And so they just haven't slowed down. So I like Indy. There's another market that I've uh, been looking at, uh, or two more. Um, I like the state of Alabama. Uh, they, they're having some upticks and they've got some good deals going on out there. I see and some good wholesalers that I've been starting to build some connections with. Um, and then there's a girl on my podcast that's like really blown up in uh, around the New Orleans area. Uh, her name's Dom and uh, Dominique. Um, I think her last name is Gunderson, if you guys want to check her out. But I've been really impressed with her, man. She's taken down probably like four or five deals a month right now, all from wholesalers, no direct to seller marketing. So yeah, those are, I mean, those three states I think have some potential. Epic. I think we need to get you on again for a wholesaling masterclass, Noah. That'd be fun, man. Yeah, I'll come back anytime. What do you think, Kyle? Kyle's nodding. Stinking <laughs> microphone mute button. I, every single episode, man, it, it hit. It gets it me every one time. time. I one just time. can't shut it off. It just drives me nuts. Yeah, it's okay. Noah can come back. That's fine. Okay, fine. Well, we got the we got the blessing from. <laughs> man, Kyle. We'd love to have you back, Noah. And, and and man, you and I have had so many conversations about everything from mindset to business to 
everything, life in general. So there's not really a whole lot out there that I don't think Noah could fill up an hour of, of really good, solid content about. So absolutely. We'd love to have you back. Yeah, so. Me too. I yeah. Can fill, I can fill up the time, man. Give me the slides. <laughs> <laughs> love that. And so, no, in terms of what's next, what does that look like for you? Like, what what are you, you're, you're working on those new markets. Is there a, you mentioned boutique hotel, right? What, well, really, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like? We're close on one, man. Um, I just, I don't know if we're going to end up taking it down. Um, you know, Kyle brought up a great point earlier. Had I got, had I been able to con been in contact with or get in contact with the seller directly earlier on and just told the broker, look, dude, we'll pay you the commission no matter what, but I need to have a relationship with this lady. Um, I think the deal would be going better. So we're on like our fourth draft of the LOI. I don't even think I like the terms anymore, but I'm so far invested into this that we're just going to keep going to see if it works out. I mean, I haven't even visited it. Um, and I haven't gone like super, super deep on the data yet. Cause I'm trying to be careful of how I'm spending my time. Mm -hmm. But, um, that's, I mean, the, those type of deals are what's next for me for sure. And if this one doesn't work out, I've learned so much from it that I think the next one will be, I'll, I'll go so much faster through it. Like I, this is probably the most serious I've ever gotten, um, as far as going deep into one, but I mean, I'll give you some context on it. So like my original LOI was at 1.7 with a seven year owner carry at 5%, uh, interest amortized over 30 years. And we knew going in there that there was no way she was going to accept 1.7. But I also knew that no matter what I offered, she was going to counter. So I'm like, I'm the only offer. Turns out that that, that offer pissed her off a lot more than I thought. And she was really upset by it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know, man. We should, I, mean, I, I should have just hopped on the phone with her and just asked for a meeting. Because the one thing you got to remember too, like I think this applies to any of these assets where they're owner-operated. Um, anytime the owner's boots on the ground, they have an emotional connection and they can take offense to an offer that doesn't match the the value in their mind when they don't know you. And that's why I kept telling these guys, man, I, I've told them probably like four or five times. I'm like, you guys are not communicating to her that I am the best buyer for two reasons. One, I'm going to continue her legacy and we're going to make this thing a freaking awesome boutique motel. And we're not devaluing what she's done. She's already done a great job, but we're going to continue it. And we're going to put all of our effort into making sure that her legacy just gets to implode, like explodes in that market. And number two, like we actually care. Like we're not some big corporate hedge fund that's going to come in and standardize every single room and make a super boring pin on the walls white. Just thought we can get our freaking 4% return. Like that's not, we don't, that's not what's impactful to us. Like if I do a boutique motel in a community, I want it to impact the community. And I want people to, to benefit from what I do. Um, and that's for, you know, there's a multitude of reasons. Like we can go really deep there, but we'll kind of skip over that. So, uh, yeah, she countered back at 1.9, um, five year balloon, uh, 5.5% interest. And, uh, I just don't know that I'm willing to, it's that she's, she's actually still okay with the 30 year am, which is pretty funny because that like really shrinks that payment down. I, I'm okay with all the terms, but I'm not, I don't really like the 1.9 purchase price. It just, it, it it makes my downside a little bit more risky because if that market turns, if we continue to go downhill as a nation, which mm -hmm. we don't need to get into all that, but um, it makes it, it'll make it hard for me to exit that deal in like five years or refinance it. I'll have to bring either an infusion of cash or whatever, but the cash flow is so good. You know, I mean, there's, there's like $6,000 a month in net cash flow with those terms, with that purchase price, um, which means over a five year period of time, we will have made back pretty much all of the money we will have invested into it. So in five years, we could, if we don't take the cash flow, we basically just paid back our down payment to ourselves. So, I mean, there's like, there's the risk management, right? It's like technically at the end of five years, we don't, we don't really have any money into it. We will have paid ourselves back. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that can be pretty tempting for sure. I mean, I've seen the asset. The asset's actually really nice and it's in a yeah. really cool part of the Where, country Whereabouts too. is it? Um, so it's in Arkansas in a, in a little boutique town. And, uh, yeah, and, and Kyle, the reason I reached Kyle out is got stuff there. Yeah. No, yeah. I, 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 lo I love the idea of a boutique hotel. I'm, I'm a big fan of Palm Springs, somewhere like that, but further yeah. afield, just because I'm uneducated. Um, but I, I there's a couple of things I'd love to own. A boutique, a boutique motel would be awesome. 
uh, and a loft. We were chatting about this the other day. Oh, um, yes. that'd be so I was cool. wanted one of these really cool New York style loft buildings. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. So that's super interesting. We got very similar interests, John. That's super funny. I uh, I would <laughs> love to do one of those too for an office. I think that'd be so fun. Absolutely. Um, so we want to be mindful of your time. What's the, what's the best way people can connect with you? Well, people can learn from you, right, from your podcast. So feel free to uh, to give that a shout out. And we should definitely get Kyle on there. Kyle, have you been on yet? On Chasing Freedom? Yeah. No, he won't let me. I'm not big enough what? for him. <laughs> yeah. Have we really not had you on? No, man, you haven't. You haven't had me on. I've, you know, I've been. I've been waiting by my phone for like you know two years now, and I, I just haven't got the call. But it, dude, I, I, I was so honored that you let me on. So I was like, <laughs> whatever. That's why you were trying to reschedule. I was like, no, dude, we're gonna do it today because I know it's gonna happen. You're gonna retract that offer, uh, dude. Well, yeah, we'll send you a link. But yeah, best place to get a, to reach me if you like really want to dive deep is uh, Instagram. I'm on there. Um, a decent amount. We also have, uh, I started doing this for, for my listeners and your guys' listeners. If you guys want to dive deep with me on something, I do four 15 minute phone calls per week that I open up to the public. Um, there's a link that I'll share with Kyle and you guys can click the link. We call it the chasing freedom hotline or the freedom hotline. Um, and that's primarily for people that like, they don't know how to start going after having financial freedom or achieving financial freedom. And so we'll start in that 15 minutes. We'll go over, you know, a very basic game plan of what that looks like. Um, and Love try to get an understanding of where you're at. So yeah. that's awesome. Oh, I'm calling you for that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I can't help the high level people, man. I mean, we're, you know, <laughs> no, that's, I'm not high level, so that's <laughs> the sweet spot for me. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, hey, Noah, thank you so much for coming on, man. And I, I genuinely, John and I would love to have you back on here. We mm-hmm. can, I mean, we got a lot of stuff left to talk about, but we just only have so much time. So we'll bring you back on and 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 continue to bend your ear a little bit and and learn. We appreciate you. Dude, you guys are great hosts. This is a super fun show. Um, I'll, I'll definitely, I'm leaving you guys a five-star review. You guys yes. Hey, two listeners. We got yeah. two. Listeners, take, a, take the lead <laughs> from Noah here. <laughs> awesome, man. Cool. Well, all the best to you. We'll talk soon. And we'll See be back guys. next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Investories Podcast. We all have a story. What's yours? The Investories Podcast.